right. Well, welcome again. Thankful uh, to have you join us. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 11. And as you're turning there, I want to share with you an absolutely ridiculous illustration, okay? So hang in there with me. I know it's ridiculous. I understand that. Uh, Just walk through it with me, if you would. Here is the illustration. I want you to pretend for a moment that I don't know anything about how to sit in chairs, okay? That's, That's the illustration. Hang in there with me. So I want you to pretend that I know nothing about chairs, but that someone said to me, Kenny, even though you know how to sit on the ground, and even though sometimes you sit on stumps, you need to sit in a chair. Oh, these chairs are wonderful. It's a great way to take a load off your feet, to uh, relax. In fact, this particular chair, you can even fall asleep in. I've seen some people do it on Sunday mornings. And <laughs> These are great chairs. These are great chairs. And so... I show up and I see this chair, but I also in this illustration, I want you to uh, assume that you are present, just like you are right now. And I look out and I go, oh, look at all these people in chairs, just like this one. In fact, as I look out, the fact that you're sitting in that chair, that you're experiencing that chair like I want to, speaks volumes to me. It helps me to identify how perhaps I should sit in this chair. It helps me to identify that, yeah, I can trust this chair. We're roughly the same, same height, but basically. We're about the same weight, and it doesn't seem like anybody's having problems with their chairs. So you know what? I, I maybe could trust this chair based on those facts and your testimony. Uh, I'm going to give it a try. And so cautiously, ooh, cautiously, gingerly, very, very cautious. There we go. I sit in the chair and I relax and I recognize that it is everything I hoped it would be. And partly because of uh, the facts that you're sitting in front of me, that you are using these chairs and that it is good. I want to give you another scenario. In this other scenario, everything is true except you're not present, and I have a chair. And I've heard friends tell me all about these chairs and how wonderful these chairs are, and boy, you should sit in those chairs, and now I have a chair of my own, and I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, how would I sit on this chair? And let's just pretend, I'm not going to do it, but pretend that I did sit on this chair like it is. It would be very uncomfortable. Before too long, I'd be squirming a little bit. I'd be uncomfortable. I'd move around a little. I'd I'd spin it. Maybe maybe if I try it this way, it'll fit better. Maybe if I flip it over like this, it'll work better. But it doesn't. It's uncomfortable. It wouldn't be too long where I would stand up and go, chairs are dumb. I don't like chairs. My friends were tricking me when they told me to trust chairs. Why would I ever sit in a chair? I share all of that uh, because this is a great picture of the faith that we live by. We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the scripture reminds us, and that this cloud of witnesses are a group of saints that have gone before us, some even identified in the scriptures that we read about and hear about, and the stories are passed on. Some of those stories are lived out. Maybe even some of those stories right here in front of us today are lived out in real ways where we go, oh, 
That's what faith looks like. Oh, that's how I interact. But there is a tendency to sometimes experience this faith without the testimony, without the stories, without the facts of other believers and of the Word of God itself. And in those places, we're prone to hurt ourselves, to injure ourselves, not physically, but spiritually. And those wounds sometimes drive people away. So it is vastly important that we go to the Scriptures, that we go to the Word of God, that we see how this faith has been lived out, and that we too live it out in like manner. With that in mind, would you join me as we pray? Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you. We ask that you would be glorified and that you would be honored even as we exercise this faith today. Lord, we recognize that this, your word, is life-giving. It gives us an ability to rest in you. It gives us an ability to live in you where we, we just don't have it without you. So thank you for your word. And thank you for the power of testimony, of people living out your truths, these faith facts that we can hold on to and that we can live in. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus Christ's precious and holy, holy, holy name we pray. Amen. We are in Psalm chapter 11. If you need a Bible, there are some in the very back. You are welcome to get a Bible if you like. Um, if you don't have one, also, you're welcome to use your phone. Again, as always, and I will probably state this every time, I am in faith trusting that you are actually looking at the scriptures and not playing a game or checking social media. So uh, that's my step of faith in all of this, I suppose. We are in Psalm chapter 11. And as you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of context around, first of all, around the Psalms. The Psalms, the book of Psalms, is broken into five sub-books. The, the, those five sub-books uh, have different um, directions, if we could say it that way. The first sub-book that we'll be in is uh, in a series of Psalm 1 through Psalm 41. In that, uh, in that section of Psalms, in that sub-book of Psalms, you would notice some themes. One of those themes would be that there is distress identified. And in the midst of distress, there is also this confidence that God will deliver. There's a confidence that God will deliver, despite the distress. And we see that in the first sub-book of the book of Psalms. Psalm 11 is in that sub-book. Psalm 11 is also written by David. David didn't write all of the psalms, but he did write Psalm 11. And this particular psalm is unique. Many commentators have said that it appears that David's palace is under siege. David is, first of all, going to get a, give a statement of faith. And then... His advisors, he's going to respond rather to his advisors, and his advisors are going to tell him about things that are happening around him, things that are true. Like these, There's no denying that these things are happening around him, but he's going to respond to his advisors, not with the fear of the moment, but with the facts of the situation. 
And we'll see that played out in just a few moments. And so what I'd like to do is read through it, identify a few things, and then we'll break it down into faith, fear, and facts as we walk through this together. Psalm chapter 11, starting in verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. I love the way that it begins. It's like David is identifying like a bird. See, birds, especially in in that area of the Middle East, they would go into these little uh, clefts of the rock. They'd find these little cracks, and they'd get down in there so that they're safe, they're protected from any predators that might be coming in. And we get this flavor immediately from David, that David is saying, "I'm, I'm like one of those birds, but guess what? God is like that big rock that surrounds me. He's protected me in ways that no, nobody else and nothing else could, not even myself. And so David makes the statement of faith, and then he's going to bring up what his advisors have said. How can you say to my soul? My, he's talking about him, his whole, his whole self, right? Everything that he is. Flee like a bird to your mountain. There's that picture again. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They've fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. And we may look at that and go, shoot in the dark? That's, That's not a great way to go hunting. But that's not the picture here. It's not about hunting a bird. It's about a siege on a palace. And that is what would happen. At night, it was very common to attack the palace. It was more difficult to see, especially in those days where uh, lighting wasn't as available. To attack in the dark was uh, discombobulating. It was confusing. It was hard to know where your enemies were. And these enemies are attacking. And then he says in verse 3, If the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? The word foundations there uh, seems to be an idiom. And that idiom is the leadership of David. And so what they're saying is, what, what happens when David's leadership is destroyed? What, what can the righteous do? Because David's leadership is being attacked, there is an overthrow that is a coup that is being attempted If it succeeds, then what of the righteous, those that are like David, the friends of God, those who love God, those who want to honor God and follow him, what of them, what happens then? And that's the question that's placed in front of them. And then David goes from uh, reinforcing fear to facts. He's just going to identify some facts. Some facts that are important every time fear swirls around us. Every time there are concerns that grab us. Every time. We have to go back to the facts. And David does that. And this is what he says. The Lord is in his holy temple. Now, this is David. David has moved the capital of Israel to Jerusalem. In doing so, uh, he wants to build a temple for God, a place where God dwells. But he's told he can't do that by God. In fact, it's going to be his son that builds the first temple in Jerusalem. But euphemistically, sometimes the tabernacle is referred to the temple. But really, the temple is in heaven. And this temple that will be built by David's son, Solomon, is a reflection of that temple in heaven. It's part of 
the way that they thought in David's day, and certainly in Jesus' day, it's a part of the prayer that Jesus said on earth as it is in heaven, that there is this God who reigns above us, who has this perfect picture in heaven in glory, and that we reflect that here on earth, that there is this uh, this holy area that is supposed to kind of gain ground, as it were, for the reign of God, or rather the rule of God. David identifies in the midst of reinforced fear that the Lord is in his holy temple. No one has taken him out of that temple, that place of worship. No one has removed him. In fact, the Lord's throne is in heaven. And now David is taking the reader or the hearer from uh, a, a, uh, how do I say, a, a description in and of itself to a functional description. To be in heaven has a different vantage point. In other words, David is trying to let the readers know or the hearers know uh, that God sees everything. God is aware of everything. He's taken refuge in the Lord and that's a good thing because God sees everything. And he goes on to reinstate that here. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The eyelids test the children of man. This is kind of a weird way of saying it that doesn't really work in English quite the same way. We could just say his eyes, right? His eyes test. In other words, it's like a refining fire. God is watching the children of man to see how they respond throughout the tests of their life. God is watching. He's keenly aware. He knows the situation. Then, verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Uh, I'm going to try to explain this. It's a little bit tricky concept because we lean into... uh, love the sinner, hate the sin so much that mm, sometimes this is, this is hard to understand. How can God hate the wicked and the one who loves violence while, while being a God of love? How does that work? Well, well, first of all, in 1 John, when we see that God is love, we recognize that this is the kind of love that is non-transactional kind of love. This is the kind of love that is love because it is love. Therefore, it loves. It's not because you are, I, I have a good feeling towards you. It's not because you did something kind to me. It's not because you earned it or gave me whatever I wanted or needed, but rather the kind of love that God is isn't based on feeling. It's not, uh, it's not based on situation. It is love for love's sake. In fact, we could even go so far to say that love is part of what births this hate, the wicked, and the one who loves violence. So let's go there. That God hates the wicked? What does that mean? How, how does he love and hate? It's kind of like light and dark being in the same place. It just doesn't coexist. So what does this mean? Well, uh, the word hate here is associated uh, with a feeling, with a passion. It's connected to. And so it is situational. In other words, someone can choose to be wicked. And because of the wickedness of the decisions that they're making, there is a hate for that. 
That's not the way that God created. That's not God, the way that God uh, 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 ordained us to live. It's not the way that God wanted or chose. This is not God's plan that you are purposefully choosing. And as long as you exist in that place of purposely choosing to not be obedient to the Lord, to follow God, to love God, then this is true. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves. But it is situational in this respect. That person who is choosing this can repent. And when they repent, it is as if they had never sinned. When they walk to the Lord, when they, walk, uh, when they repent and go to the Lord, it is as if they had never sinned. This, wicked, this wickedness is taken away. It is, they are not judged for that. It's very tricky, I recognize, but it's important for us to distinguish. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. It's reminiscent, right, of Sodom and Gomorrah, a group of wicked people who lived without repentance, who lived a life purposefully against God. Verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright, the level, shall behold his face. The upright shall behold his face. Well, let's break it down. Let's talk about this for a moment. Let's talk about the faith, the fear, and the facts. Uh, let's look at how David uses this psalm to uh, really re, uh, reinforce his position. In the Lord I take refuge. David's the king of Israel who's being attacked. Would it be crazy for Dave to, David to go, you know what? I take refuge in the Lord because he's given me these armies. He's given me this position of authority. He's given me this ability to rule, and so I will. And I take refuge in my ability to rule, in my army. He could have done that, but he doesn't. He is careful to not take glory away from God. It is God who I'm taking refuge in, not my ability, not my authority, not my position. David is very clear on that fact. But then we get to this matter of fear. Keep in mind that as, as we read these, this section, uh, it's true. There, there is a coup going on. There is an attack on the palace. Those things are true. That's happening. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow uh, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. In other words, they are targeting David. That is happening. And then, and then what happens, David, if you're destroyed? So why don't you just flee? Why don't you just run away? Why don't you just go to this mountain? Let's just get out of here. Hmm. But David has made a statement. But they're reinforcing fear. And you and I might live in that sort of tension. Fear is being reinforced. And maybe that happens in relationships around you, right? I mean, we all have those relationships where, oh, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I, uh, what if I don't say the right thing? Or what if I don't show up for this event or that event? Or what if, what if, what if, what if? And we reinforce these fears. 
in our relationships. Or maybe it's health. Oh, we got a report from the doctor that is pretty scary. Hmm, what does this mean? What if? What if? What if? And we reinforce the fear. Or maybe there are things going on in the world around us, and we have to make some really difficult decisions. Really hard decisions. What happens when uh, people disagree? What happens when the world is divided? What happens? And we stand in difficult places. A little over a week ago, I had been wrestling with, oh, am I going to bring this into the, dis- the sermon or not? Will, will I talk about this matter that I'm about to talk about? And I wrestled with it from a variety of angles and for a variety of reasons. But a situation occurred that it's appropriate to deal with. And so uh, please hang in there and hear the whole story before you respond. As you know, uh, the Supreme Court um, responded to Roe v. Wade and um, in in their response made it so that it is no longer a constitutional right. And, and I'll just tell you that as a believer, as a follower of God, when I look at scriptures, I see that God is the ordainer of life. W- by the way, we're going to write a blog on this very issue. Uh, we'll have it out prob- within the next few weeks, but um, where we talk about this in a little bit more detail. But I, I, I believe that that is true. And so though the, the courts struck down Roe v. Wade, each state has their decisions to make, um, there was a firestorm on social media. I don't know if you saw that or not, but uh, the, there were responses on both sides. One of the responses was a family member, uh, a cousin of mine, whom I love, adore, who is also not a believer. And their response was very uh, angry towards people who would say that they're pro-life. Again, I'm going to state this because I think it's important. I'm pro-life because of the scriptures, not because of any political party. Okay, just so we understand that. So her response was, was pretty awful, to be honest with you. But I love this cousin. And all I could think about is how weird our family get-togethers are going to be, how tricky it's going to be, how there's this divide. And I thought about not even responding. But then I thought about David. And how David said, the Lord, the Lord protects me. I, I'm going to be in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to allow God to be my provision. And, and I'm going to stand in truth. And, and from that truth will direct my steps of faith. And so I was challenged. Friends, I don't always do it right. In fact, I often don't. This was one of those times where it was right and it was good. And, and so I reached out to this family member. And uh, just began to dialogue. Hey, this... This is where I stand. I see that you stand here, and we begin this dialogue. And in this dialogue, it became very clear that uh, this family member, who's not a believer, uh, it wasn't that she was pro-choice. That wasn't her stance as much as she was pro-family. And she was saying, well, wait a minute. What happens after these babies are born and the foster care goes uh, just through the roof? What happens uh, when, uh, with adoptions? Are we willing to do that? So that was her concern. Well, that, that took some discussion, right? Like, we didn't just get there. We, we had to talk through it. We had to dialogue together to get there. And once I heard that, then I was able to tell her uh, a few things. You know, here, 
Here's some illustrations of people who have done it right. And I shared some people I know who have engaged in the foster system and, and have made an impact. And then I talked about some adoption agencies who are trying to uh, make it uh, more inexpensive and make it more available for people to uh, adopt children. Oh, suddenly she goes, thank you for talking to me. I'm sorry because what I said was kind of mean. I go, well, I wasn't looking for an apology, but I really appreciate it. And guess what? I love you. And she said, guess what? I love you too. Oh, we were in a good place then. But it took us, oh, okay, God, I'm trusting you and I'm willing to engage. And I love you and I'm systematically going to walk through this, not to prove them wrong, but to first hear them and then walk with them in that place. Uh, it's a different way of doing it, at least in terms of social media. But it's something that we absolutely have to do because fear is going to be reinforced by so many voices and so many angles. And church, we have to rise above that and stand in the facts. And that's what David does. He can make a statement of faith because he has some facts that back him up. See, there was a time when David's grandma had to walk in faith to leave her family in Moab and to follow her mother-in-law after her husband died. And she goes into Israel as a foreigner and ends up becoming uh, the, the bride of Boaz. And she has children and she has a grandson and his name's David. And David knew that story of Ruth and Boaz. David saw a woman who walked in faith, who lived a life of faith. And so when David's animals, as a shepherd, when his animals were being attacked, David remembered and David walked in faith and he trusted the Lord and the Lord delivered and protected those animals. And then there was a giant who came in and cursed the God of Israel. And as this giant came in and cursed the God of Israel, and David said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust this God who is my refuge and got an incredible victory because David knew how to discern and to walk in, in faith because of the facts. And here we have them. The first is the Lord is in his holy temple. Like, let's not miss that. The Lord is in his holy temple. Uh, in heaven for sure, but also here on earth. In the first temple with Solomon, the Shekinah glory of God is available in the first temple. God the Father is present in that place. And then this, the first temple is destroyed. And the second temple is built. And in the second temple being built, there, there is no Ark of the Covenant. The Shekinah glory of God is never in the second temple except the Son of God is in that temple. Jesus shows up and we know that he is in that temple. That he, I mean, we have the stories from the scriptures that he's present in that temple. In fact, in John chapter 2, he even says it this way, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days referring to himself, identifying that the Spirit of God is housed here in him. The Lord is in his temple. But then we find from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that Paul has, he takes that to the next level. And he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of God? If the Spirit dwells in you. And so for all who have trusted in the Lord Jesus, for all who have called on him, the Spirit of God indwells those, and they are the temple. And God is present in his holy temple. 
And we don't ever forget that reality. David takes us to the truth of that. And then he goes on to say, but guess what? God is enthroned in heaven. What is he saying? God reigns. The New Testament, the term kingdom of God is used often. You could also translate it or say it maybe better this way. The rule of God. The rule of God is on his people. The rule of, of God is there on earth as it is in heaven. I, 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 want, I want God's rule in my life because I know God's rule leads to life everlasting. I know that God's rule lead, leads to me giving him glory and honor and praise. I know God's rule is transformational in my life. And I want to lean into that reality. The Lord sees us. And the Lord tests the righteous. Like gold being refined, God allows this testing in our lives. I heard a guy say one time, we are either getting ready to go into a storm or we're in a storm or we're just stepping out of a storm. (laughs) But that's part of the life of people. And so people, uh, we have to understand that God is producing something good in those places, whether that's with our relationships or with our health or Uh, with our finances or with like all of those things God wants to use for his glory to bring us to him to purify us. That's a beautiful thing. Let's skip down to verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. I, I, I love this idea. It even kind of smacks of almsgiving uh, used in Uh, Temple days, certainly in the New Testament, almsgiving was this, that there were a group of people who, they they were poor. And when I say poor, I mean really poor. Like, they didn't have food. They didn't have shelter. In many cases, they didn't even have clothing. They were poor. Their life was dependent on the good nature, the benevolence of others who would give to them for benevolence sake. Consider that for a moment. If that smacks of righteous deeds, then God is the example of that in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, we didn't have the ability, the strength. uh, We didn't have the finance. We couldn't buy it. We couldn't earn it. There was no way of getting this life eternal. We were dead to sin and death, but God in his goodness, in his benevolence, offered eternal life to us when he went to the cross and died for our sins, when he rose from the grave and extended his life to anyone who would call on him, he gave us that benevolence, that, righteous, that righteousness. And so there is a response for those who have received that to now give that away, that we would be benevolent, that we would be stewards of the gospel that we have been given. The upright shall behold his face And we use this term face a a few different ways in English. It's also used kind of that way in in, uh, Hebrew. And so here's an example. Uh, We might say something like, uh, it's good to see your face. We mean it's good to see you, right? I'm, I'm glad to see you. I'm looking at your face. But we might also say that the boxer faced his opponent. Now, what we don't mean is that the, fox, the, the boxer looked at his opponent. That's not what we mean. 
we mean that the boxer moved forward. He went into that, that, that conflict. He was willing to move forward. And so we face our fears. We move forward. And so in that respect, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright, the level, those, those that, that are doing the right things shall behold his face. They see where God is going and they follow God in those places. David got it. Not being motivated by the fears that are being reinforced around him, but rather the facts of who God is. And we live in similar days. And as we prepare our hearts for communion, I I just want to walk through a few questions as the worship team comes out for us to chew on and to wrestle with before I give you directions for communion. First of all, what fears keep me from living out my faith? Are there some fears that I have used as an excuse, right, wrong, or indifferent, those I've reinforced some fears that have kept me from being obedient to God's word, loving God, and following him? What might those be? Are those relationships? What will they say? If I say this, well, oh, I don't want to feel stupid. I don't want to make anybody mad. I don't, like, is it relationships? What is the fear? How about What facts do you know and believe that help your faith? Here's a fact. God came in the flesh. God lived a perfect life. God was willing to go to the cross and offered his life as a ransom for my soul. He was willing to uh, die the just for the unjust. He rose from the grave, a historical fact, And he gives life to anybody who would call on him. That's a fact. And as we look at that fact, we believe it and it helps our faith. I can trust God in this place. And then what's your next step of faith? Maybe it's just simply to receive Christ. Like, okay, you've heard this message. You've you've been, God's been tugging on your heart, but you've been kind of standoffish a little bit. And now you're in a place where you go, you know what? My next step of faith is to trust Jesus as my Savior. Lord, forgive me for my sins. I have tried to do it on my own. I've tried to earn this life on my own, and it hasn't worked. I recognize that. And I need your benevolence. I need your work on the cross, not mine. And so we repent and we turn towards Jesus, receiving eternal life. Or maybe your next step of faith is to make a public statement of faith in believer's baptism. Maybe that's it. Maybe your next step of faith is to serve somewhere. Maybe your next step of faith is an apology and a request of forgiveness. Maybe your next step of faith is to forgive. What is that where you need to back into the cleft of the rock and let the Lord be your refuge and trust him and not our own works? What is that? We believe in open communion at Friendship Church. That means that anyone is able to participate who has received Jesus as their Savior. It means that we take a few moments to consider questions like this and questions like, is there any unrepentant sin that I'm wrestling with right now? And to give opportunity to repent of those sins before we participate. And so the way that we do this here, and by the way, I I love this practice. It reminds me of Matthew 10. And the practice is that we ask people to stand up and go to the stations nearest you, go to the carpeted areas, uh, go to the station nearest you, and then return on the outer, uh, on the outer part of the, 
uh, worship center. And the way that it reflects Matthew 10 is this, that Jesus says, those who acknowledge me before men, I'll acknowledge before my Father in heaven. And those who don't acknowledge me before men, I won't acknowledge before the Father in heaven. Though he's not talking about communion in that passage, I do see it played out in a very real way as we come together in communion. We wait for everyone to be served, and then at the end of this next song, we'll participate together. If you have problems where you're seated and you can't get to a station on your own for whatever reason, that's fine. If you just raise your hand and let us know, we'll come to you and serve you where you're at. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, we do love you and we praise you. We thank you that you are good. We recognize our incredible need for you. We thank you that you are our refuge. Why would we ever fly away from you? So, Lord, be exalted. Be exalted, O Lord, for you dwell in your holy temple. And for those who have called on you, we are called your temple that place where the Holy Spirit dwells on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, as we seek you today, I do pray that you would pierce our hearts, that we would be repentant, whether that's forgiveness or reconciliation that needs to occur, or whether that's a sin that has got us trapped in a life of wickedness. Lord, I pray that you would pierce our hearts, that we would repent for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.